My name is John Ray. I'm one of the teaching elders here at Grace Church. And March 14th is affectionately known as what? Does anybody know? Pi Day, right. Why is it Pi Day? Come on, Tim. I heard it. Because it's 3.14, right? Yeah, all of us who didn't fall asleep, all of you who didn't fall asleep in math class, uh, know that, right? But it doesn't stop at 1.4. It's actually 1.4.9.2.6.5.3.5.8.9.7.9.3.2.3.8.4.6.2.6.4.3.3.8.3.2.7.9.5.0.2 on ad nauseum ad infinium. Uh, and there's no apparent pattern to the succession of digits, um, but in a small apartment in New York City, there are two brothers from the Ukraine, the Chednovsky brothers, who have dedicated their life to finding the end of pie. And to this end, they have turned their New York apartment essentially into a supercomputer. By mail ordering parts from all over, they have assembled a computer that has the computing power equivalent to some of the largest mega computers that are known. It, it is churning out the numbers so fast that in addition to turning their apartment into um, a computer, they've also had to bring in fans and air conditioning um, of, a, of an unbelievable number and it's still always over 100 degrees inside their apartment. And they live in this apartment too while this computing is going on. In one room, they have over 1,000 pounds of computer printouts with nothing but numbers on them trying to get to the end of pi. To date, they have not found any successive pattern any rhyme, any reason. The computer just keeps running with numbers. Now this week we're going to look at a text where God takes Abram out and he says, look up. Now in our society here with all the modern day lights we have and things going on, when we look up, we'll see some stars, but maybe not many. Those of us who have had the privilege of going out into the desert of West Texas, or maybe the observatory on the big island of Hawaii, it's a different deal seeing the stars. But even now, even on our planet today, it is impossible for us to replicate the sky that Abram saw at that time. It would have been, the stars would have literally rained down on Abram when God said, look up. And he said, look up and start counting. And if Abram had had a supercomputer at that time and could have done what the Chudnovsky brothers are doing, maybe he would have, but that computer would still be running today trying to count the stars. We need, we're going to talk about this in a minute, we need as human beings something tangible to understand the intangible. We're going to talk about faith today, and faith in our modern-day society is often divorced from 
hard, tangible things. It's kind of a urethral, you know, it's, it's spiritual, it's divorce from context, it's something that's hard to nail down. Um, and I think that's why God gave this, this tangible thing to do to Abraham in conjunction with talking about faith. So pray with me as we begin our journey to look at what this is. Abba, Father, we are so grateful you have gathered us here today. Brought us from our homes, from our comfort, to gather together, to focus on you, focus on your word, your people, your power, your promises. God, I ask for faith this morning as we talk about it, that it's not just something we talk about, but it's something that we experience. It's something that we engage with, that we ultimately have more of, that it goes deeper and it is more authentic. Do this by your Holy Spirit, please. Would you do that for us, God? Would you increase our faith, deepen our faith? Help us to own our faith. We look to you to answer this as we study now in Jesus' name. So we're skipping ahead. The past two weeks, we started with Genesis 1, then Chris led us through Genesis 2, and now we're jumping ahead to Genesis 15. Abram, and we have this encounter with Abram. We'll go back and kind of set this up a bit, but let's look at the text right now. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is God talking. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I continue to be childless? And my heir is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram noted, since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. But look, the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body will be your heir. The Lord took him outside and said, gaze into the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Or as James noted in our teaching method, if you read the Hebrew, it kind of reads like this. Go outside, gaze, into the st- gaze at the stars, and start to count them. You can't. <laughs> you won't be able to get there. Your computer will run ad infinitum, ad nauseum, <laughs> without coming to an end. And as Donnie shows and just clicks through these images of the Hubble Space um, Telescope, I want to make a few comments on this. First of all, Abraham in the Bible has nine successive encounters with God. This is the fifth among them. Up to this point, he's come and given in Genesis 12 what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. He's promised Abram that through his family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he's, he's promised Abram an inheritance. He's promised to bless him. He's promised to increase. And this, probably years later, 
we find Abram and Sarah childless. Childless. Like this promise was given and then crickets from God. And this also comes immediately after a great battle which Abram and his clan, who had with him his servants and their servants and their kids, they joined in and they helped defeat an enemy. And the king came to Abram and said, here, take your part of the spoil, take your part of the reward. And Abram refused it. He said, no. He said, that's not my inheritance. That's why I'm not here. I am not here to plunder. I am not here to pillage. I'm not here to profit. In that way, my inheritance is from the Lord. So Abram makes this tremendous proclamation of faith to the pagan king and immediately turns around and questions God. Isn't that like us? Or at least that's like me. Like I can, I can put on a good face in public. I can stand here and, and teach the word and be confident in my manner and my speech and then walk out the doors and dissolve into doubt, into worry, into second-guessing when I'm alone with God. And I think that's kind of what's happening here with Abram is he, he makes this incredible stance of faith as a testimony to the, to the pagans. He makes this offering to Melchizedek, which came a little bit earlier, and yet he goes back to his own tent and he looks at the empty crib. And he's like, the emotions flood. And I think that's why the first words, the first words out of God's mouth when he appears are fear not. Abram, fear not. Now, fear not is a theme we don't have time to go into this morning, but it is throughout the Bible. It's probably the most oft-repeated command in the Bible is fear not. After 600 years of silence in what we call the intertestamental period, God appears to Mary, or the angel appears to Mary. Fear not. You break the silence, 600 years of silence, with fear not. So these things are happening. And, and it's important for us to understand that this was not just a passing longing to have a baby to hold. That for Abram and Sarah, this was not just a question of, hey, we, we really love kids, and we really want to be parents, so we really want to have kids. They didn't think of, I mean, they love their kids. Look, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that. But their, their children, the thought of heirs, the thought of progeny, the thought of your ancestors going on before you carried much more weight in that society than it does in ours. And to kind of give you an example of this, if, uh, if, you, if you were to win the lottery right now, okay? If you were to win the lottery right now, all of a sudden, what are some of the things you're thinking of? What are some of the things that you're imagining you would do with that? Now, not to put anybody on the spot, because I know I'm, I'm going to confess from mine, most of the thoughts that I have deal with me. <laughs> deal with me right now deal with what I would immediately do to take care of my, And then I might think about, hey, I'll help somebody else. Hey, I'll make sure my kids are taken care of. 
And if I'm really forward-thinking, maybe my grandkids. So, so hold that in your mind. If you had come to Abram at this point and said, Abram, you just won the lottery. You're going to be the richest man on the planet. His immediate thought would be, who cares? His immediate thought would be, so what? So what? So I can leave it all for my servants? What good does that do? And that's the difference in, in what's being approached here is as Abram looks towards the future and sees it without an heir, it just, it's so what? There's no meaning. There's no purpose here for me in this. And so that's creating anxiety. That's creating fear. That's creating these thoughts in him. You can explore these later. We talked about it in the leaders meeting yesterday. If you go to the screenshot, um, on those of you who aren't familiar, every week we produce a teaching guide. And there are links in there. There are study questions. There are things that happen. But if you go on there, a lot of what you'll hear me say today, if you want to go more into depth and find out about where that came from or a greater example, you can go on the teaching guide with that. But let's go back to the text. So after all this, he questions God. It says, Then he said to him, So will your descendants be. Look, he's speaking to Abram as he's looking at the stars. So put yourself there. You're standing out on this pasture in Canaan. And you look up and you see the magnificent Milky Way lighting up, and you hear the voice say, so will your descendants be. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord considered his response of faith as proof of genuine loyalty. Now, a lot of your Bibles, a lot of the other translations translate this as proof of his righteousness or credited it to Abram as righteous, which is definitely a legitimate translation. However, this this genuine loyalty, I think, carries with it something that I want to express today. Um, Teresa Cornett, as we were preparing this, she said, she said, let's talk about genuine loyalty. She said, this is my love language. So if any of you want to, if any of you want to truly bless Teresa Cornett, genuine loyalty is strong with her. Uh, she describes it as the people who, who when they say, hey, let's get it together for lunch soon after she gets a text and they say when where and what can I bring that that kind of response rather than as I so often do flippantly say, hey let's do lunch and then I forget about it so I have to watch that now But what is it that is being credited here what is it here that is proof of genuine loyalty what is it that is credited? To Abram as righteous. In other words, what is faith? Well, friends, look, there is no single sermon on a Sunday morning that is going to define adequately faith. As a matter of fact, my desire this morning is not to condense faith down something you can take out. I want to blow it up. I want to expand it. I want to increase it. 
And to do that, I want to start by talking about what faith is not. First of all, what faith is not, it's not perfect obedience. Faith is not meaning that, hey, I'm going to do everything exactly right. I'm going to do it just the way, in the way, at the time that it's said to be done. That's not what's being talked about here. It's also not the absence of doubt. We see very clearly from the story, right? Abram is fearing. He's, he's doubt. He's like, really, God? You said that. You told me that a long time ago. You've said it since then. I don't see it happening. So faith, then by definition, can't be the absence of doubt. It also can't be the absence of conflict. It can't be that Abram took this word, took that promise, and then was just totally at peace. I would say that actually that that word increased the conflict within Abram. Here he was, he was promised something that seemed impossible by human achievement, by human capacity. If anything, that increased the conflict, the tension in Abram's life. It, I, I, I would guarantee, I can't guarantee, but I would suspect that it increased the tension between Abram and Sarah quite a bit as to who was at fault for failure to conceive at that time. Faith is not the absence of fear. First words of the angel, fear not, or the Lord here, fear not. So obviously fear is present. And then here's the one that I think may be the most challenging to us. It's Faith doesn't mean just shut up and swallow it. Just shut up and eat your peas. Abram argues with God. God comes and says, hey, this is going to happen. Abram says, oh yeah, really? Uh-huh. Really? Have, are we talking about the same situation here, God? Are, we, are, you, look, are you seeing what I'm seeing, God? I, I got a tent full of servants. No kids. I got a wife who's way past the age to bear children. She's going to get pregnant? Who are you talking to here, God? So faith is not an absence of argument. Well, if it's not all those things, then what is it? What is this faith that is credited to that God looks and says, yep, that's proof. Well, we don't know for sure. We really don't. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you as I find increasingly as I walk this journey with Jesus, this is what I sense faith to be. It is an inescapable sense of being loved. It is increasingly leaning into a future that is defined by God, His promises, His presence, His person. Not by one defined by my emotions or by the culture or by the enemy. 
And you know what I mean by that? Like you're leaning into it. Like you don't know how to do it. I don't know how to live this out. I don't know how to perfectly obey. I don't know how to perfectly have faith. But what I do is, man, if I get a, if I get a scent of it, I'm going to follow the scent. If I, get a, if I get a breeze in my face, I'm going to turn towards that breeze and I'm going to lean into it. Then I'm always and continually going to be developing an attunement to what God is about, where he is, where God is doing things. And I'm going to, I'm going to lean into that with that. I think it's also refusing the titles, judgments, and enticements of this world because we can quickly attune to that. As a matter of fact, that's our default setting is that we're attuned to those things. And it's so easy if we do not actively seek the presence of God to be satisfied with the pronouncements and the titles and the rewards and the shame of this culture. And I believe that belittles and diminishes our faith. I think it's also this, and this is, a, this is a dangerous word because it's been abused, but it's inescapable. That I think faith is submission to the practices and the people and the promises of God. That we actively choose to submit to put our own under those things that are reflective of the practices, the people, and the promises of God. It's betting that God is going to come through somehow, some way, somewhere, pushing ever-increasing amounts of chips across the table and putting them on the God box, betting them on the God card. It is the ultimate ingredient in developing an active gospel imagination. Is your imagination diminished? Is, do you have less and less thoughts, fewer and fewer thoughts, more flat, less colored? Or is your imagination about God, the things of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God, ever increasing? You see new ways, new colors, new depth to it. If that is happening, faith is growing It doesn't happen by itself. It is always going to be tainted with an amalgamation of our own self, our own understanding, and our own doubts and conflicts and ignorance. And it can't be because we know after this that Abram and Sarah, what they did, what did they do after, right? They trusted God. It was counted to them as righteousness. Here's proof of genuine loyalty. They walk out of the tent and Sarah says, take my maid. And Abraham says, okay. (laughs) So it wasn't like this thing that was just dropped on them and then all of a sudden they're perfect. Stuff continued to happen. Well, so what about us? What do we do with this? What, What do we, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think the first thing is, at least for me, is I need more faith. I need more of it. Now, I want to give a disclaimer, and I gave it in the notes in the introduction here. That I really believe one of the most, one of the worst things you can say to someone who's struggling is go up to them and say, hey, you just got to have faith. Hey, you just got to have more faith. 
Often that is an indictment. It says basically you're in this mess because of your lack of faith is what is being communicated. You may not mean that, but that is often what is received. If someone is struggling, if someone is in a, in a, gets a bad diagnosis or gets laid off or something, it's like, hey, you just got to have faith. In that moment, that, that just comes off as condemnation. I've never seen that used as something that is genuinely encouraging. However, the problem is it really, it's true. It's not, it's not that the principle is bad, it's that the, the timing is bad when we say that. Because in reality, we need more faith. And I'm not, I'm not making the equation that we're in our situations because of a lack of it. I'm just saying that at all times, everywhere, and especially in times of trial and conflict or, or suffering, we need more faith. We need to be more connected, more leaning into, the, like I said, the people, the promises, the presence of God. We need more faith with that. Just be careful how we say that. The way that we do this, and we've talked about this before, um, that it is a principle that... <clears throat> we've said this, we will much more likely act our way into a new way of feeling than feel our way into a new way of acting. The way that we get more faith is we act like we have more faith. We don't wait to feel that, we do that. And I think we can change that maxim and apply it directly here to say we will much more likely act our way into more faith than to faith our way into more action. If you're waiting for faith to just be dropped on you, if you're passively waiting for it, it's probably not going to happen. Faith often comes in conjunction with that volitional stepping out. That's why we have to accept that it is always an amalgamation of doubt and fear and anger and tension and questioning. If we're waiting for this perfect state where all that goes away before we act, we're never going to act. It's never going to happen with that. So we need more faith. We also need a deeper faith. It's not just a matter of quantity with this, but it's also depth. And just like a, a deeper plant, uh, the deeper a plant puts down at root, its roots, the more healthy it is. But you know, you know what spurs a plant to put down deeper roots? Is challenge, is conflict. And we don't like this part. We don't like to understand that the way my faith is going to grow is by being challenged. It's going to be by the losses and the loneliness. It's going to be by the heartache and the hurtful words. But those are all invitations for us to put down our roots even deeper. And we need those times. We need those times. The thing is, we don't get to choose them. I mean, I, I, look, I can accept, theoretically, this proposition. I can accept that. I understand it. I see it at work every day. I see it at work in, in the way the world works. I see it the way it works in plants. I see the way it works in character. Understanding that, hey, co challenge, conflict, obstacles, build my faith. I get that. 
I just don't like it. I don't like it because I can't control it. I don't get to pick and choose what obstacles come my way. I don't get to say, hey, God, time out. I don't, I don't get a time out. And some of those obstacles are going are to happen really quick. It's going to be something that happens right away. Some of those obstacles are going to last our lifetime. Some of those challenges are never going to be resolved. Some of those things which God can use to deepen our faith will never go away. I don't like that. I wish that weren't true. It is inescapable that it is true. I think the only way to handle it, the only way I know to handle it, is the grace to understand that through that, time and time again, the Bible says, consider it all joy because it is perfecting, deepening your faith. Again, don't tell somebody that. Don't go, don't go to him in the midst of the conflict. Don't go to him in the midst of the pain and say, hey, you know what? Praise God, this is deepening your faith. Don't do that. But pray that that is what they are receiving. Pray that they get that revelation. And maybe in the time when it is lessened, maybe in the time where... <gasps> We get that respite where we come up for air, where we can see that. Then you can enter into that conversation. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. The bigger thing, though, the way you really want to do it, show it in your own life. Demonstrate it in your own life. Witness it in your own life. People get it. People are struggling. They'll get it then. They won't get it by the words, but they'll get it by the witness. They won't hear it in your lecture, but they will see it in your life. That's how you get that message across. The last thing we want to see here is that we need a faith that is authentic. Eugene Peterson gives this quote about False religion versus true religion. He says, popular or false religion is a supernatural assistance to do whatever you wish. Make money, ensure a good harvest, feel good, murder the person you hate, get ahead of your neighbor. That's the promise of false religion. That's, that's the pragmatic use of religion. He says, in contrast, true religion is this. True religion is a way of discovering the meaning of life of ordering justice in society, of finding direction towards goals of excellence, of acquiring the discipline to live with integrity, of realizing how God loves us, and learning how to love God in return. I would add that it helps us understand what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Listen, those are the questions. Those are the questions, guys, that, that are the most important. What is true? What is good? What is beautiful? That's what you're going to find. That's what Jesus leads us to. Not a list of ideas, not a list of rules. He leads us into what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And that becomes authentic in this sense that it becomes our own. Listen, we need a faith. Our, our faith will never be... Our, our faith will never be private. But it has to be personal. 
We have to own our faith. Every one of us here has to come to that point where we own our faith, where it is authentic to us. Now, we learn that by, by seeing other people's faith, by taking our parents' faith, by taking our grandparents' faith, by taking the faith of the church when we're young. But if it stays their faith, it's not authentic to us. Each one of us has to take this and make it our own. And when we understand this, then we get the freedom to ask the questions that I want to ask. Not somebody else's question, not a theoretical question, not a hypothetical question, but my question. God, why this? Why now? It also gives me the freedom to experience the emotions instead of feeling like I have to conform or perform to someone else's standard or expectation. As I can understand that I can walk into a room and people will be totally oblivious to something and I'll feel it as a crushing weight. Or the opposite, that I can go into a situation where everybody else is freaking out and I'm like, this is cool. I don't have to conform emotionally, questioning-wise. I don't have to pretend is what I'm trying to say. You don't have to pretend. Your faith can be authentic to your situation, to your context, to your personality, with what's going on. And again, this is something that takes a lifetime. Now, each one of these points, more faith... Deeper faith, authentic faith. We have questions this week that I hope you'll look at and, and that you'll deal with them in your private devotions as well as in the context of community group or discussions with your, within your family, within people that you trust with that. So let's wrap this up. Look, it's easy to think of faith as some sort of disconnected, cerebral, solely spiritual act. It's not. What do you need to look at? What do you need to hold on? Do you need to go to the beach? Do you need to, do you need to next time you go to the beach, take, scoop up a jar of the sand on that beach that you love and put it on your desk or put it on the windowsill and say, God, your promises. Because in other places he says, look at the sand. It'll be as limitless as the sand on the seashore. Do you need to print off one of these or your screensaver be the Hubble space shots of the stars? What is it? Do you need a field of alpine meadow, endless flowers, grass? What, what, what is the tangible thing that you need to, to encourage you to hold on to with this? Whatever it is, find it. Let it be a sign. Let it be a reminder that we have all been invited into this faith. We've all, listen, if you're here today, you've been given the gift of faith. It's already there. What are you going to do to nurture it? What are you going to do to honor that? What are you going to do to lean into that? Well, what we're going to do collectively right now is we're going to come to this table. And this is what I want to ask today as you come to the communion table. The worship team will come up. As you come to this table today, I want you to bring your faith. Not my faith, not 
the faith of someone around you, not the faith that you think you ought to have, not even the faith that you want. I want you to bring the faith you have right now. Imperfect, tainted, it may be growing, it may be waning, it may be confused, I don't know, but you got it. Bring that faith to the table and look at the answer that Jesus gives you. Take into your hand the answer that Jesus gives you. This ultimate response of love, this ultimate response of genuine loyalty, this ultimate response of righteousness that is represented here, that is present here. Look at what your faith is met with. Look at what our faith is met with. It's met with the body, the sacrifice, the love of Jesus. Do that this morning. Take that response to the faith that you have now, not the faith that you think you should have or have to muster up. And let the response of God be the answer to that. Thank you.